Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are honored to have Dr. Seymour Schwartz as our guest today. This episode is brought to you in coordination with McGraw-Hill Medical and Access Surgery. If you listen carefully during this episode, one question regarding the content will be posted on Wednesday, July 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern. If you follow Absite Q of Week, we will post a question there, and the first couple of correct responses will win a free copy of the latest edition of Schwartz's Principles of Surgery. Dr. Schwartz is a distinguished alumni professor of surgery at the University of Rochester Medical Center. He completed his bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin, medical school at New York University, and general surgery residency at the University of Rochester. He subsequently joined the faculty and has remained there for over 40 years. In a long list of accomplishments, Dr. Schwartz is best known as a surgeon scientist who contributed to hepatobiliary surgery and as a major contributor to surgical literature, specifically as editor-in-chief of Schwartz's Principles of Surgery. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for joining us today. I'm pleased to be here. So we like to get our episode started talking, having you tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where are you from? How did you get into surgery and on this path and this career that you've been on? Yeah, I uh, was born in New York City in the Bronx. And I, as indicated, I went to public, public school and then on to Wisconsin by chance because uh, I couldn't afford to go to any other university. I had been accepted to Yale, but did not have scholarship funds. So my mentor at the public high school where I attended, uh, DeWitt Clinton High School, an all-boys school, had uh, attained obtained his uh, graduate degree from uh, Wisconsin, and he arranged for my attending there as a scholarship student, and that's how I got to Wisconsin. I point out that uh, as I was growing up, uh, my father was in uh, World War II, so I had uh, little in the way of any uh, educational guidance. Uh, uh, my mother was not a college graduate, and uh, uh, perhaps best evidence of that my lack of any sophistication educationally was the fact that I didn't realize there was a Bronx High School of Science uh, where I would perhaps receive a more sophisticated uh, high school education. So I went to DeWitt Clinton High School. Uh, which was an all-boys school, uh, and actually it worked out very well. I was reading something about uh, how you ended up choosing your residency along with your wife, who is an yeah. obstetrician, I believe, and that it was on a coin toss. Can you tell us more about that? Exactly. Uh, it, I uh, completed the uh, University of Wisconsin, and at the end of the war, 
they had set, it was a state school, they had set the standards that they would accept people based purely on grade point, but limited their acceptances to in-state residents. Since I was an out-of-state resident, I couldn't go to medical school there, but I, and therefore went uh, and graduated to at New York University. So I was a senior at New York University Medical School while my wife, who was from a small town uh, in uh, Wisconsin, New London, Wisconsin, and uh, parenthetically, she was the first member of her immediate family uh, who would go to college. We were at two different venues when we would be applying to uh, for an internship. There was no match at the time. Uh, and in fact, it was known that a husband and wife uh, could not work in the same hospital, academic hospital. And uh, we elected to get married admittedly at a young age, but we realized that it would be more difficult uh, to establish a relationship as uh, interns or first-year residents. And so we were married at the time we were applying. And the method of applying then was to determine where you wanted to go and determine whether there was a place for one of the spouses to study at one institution, the other in the same city at another. So we applied to four cities to uh, St. Louis, where I applied to Barnes for a surgical residency, and she applied to St. Louis uh, City Hospital for an OBGYN residency. Uh, I applied to Johns Hopkins, and she applied to Baltimore City, uh, and uh, we both applied to training programs in Rochester, New York, I to the University of Rochester Medical Center surgical program, she to the Genesee Hospital, which would, had a nice uh, OBGYN program. And we both applied also to Minneapolis, I to the University of Minnesota and Dr. Wangenstein's uh, residency, uh, she to the Hennepin uh, County. We only uh, were accepted in Rochester and at, in Minnesota. And she was at her, we had to call back on a collect call to the chairman of our, uh, the program to which we had applied uh, within an hour. And we were not interviewed in either uh, at either center. In fact, had never visited either Minneapolis or Rochester, New York. And we, I phoned her initially and said, uh, do you have a preference between Rochester and Minneapolis? And she said, no, I had no preference either, knowing nothing about either city or program. And uh, we tossed the coin and we were, uh, ended up at Rochester. It's so interesting how, you know, the match is still for couples 
quite difficult and there's a lot of considerations, but interesting to hear, you know, what you guys had to go through knowing that you couldn't go to the same hospital at that time. Moving forward, uh, you did your residency at Rochester and was it during residency that you started your research or had you been doing research even earlier? Well, I had the good fortune while I was at Wisconsin, there was a Dr. Joseph Lawlish who was a pathologist and uh, I did residency with him on uh, hemoglobic neuric nephrosis, uh, which the crush syndrome that was experienced uh, during the war in Great Britain. And uh, we published an article when I was still an undergraduate, which he was kind enough to make me the first author, though it was his uh, direction, of course. And uh, it showed that by alkalinizing the urine, uh, you could avoid uh, the uh, obstructive phenomena and the breakdown in renal uh, glomerular filtration. And because of that article, I had a, a minor research uh, uh, background, which we, that was all the research I had done uh, before I started my residency. and. Uh, the residency was so structured during that time, a time of the Korean War, that if you were in the surgical fields of residency, you had to go to the service unless you could be deferred for two years before uh, you could be accepted in the senior residency years. So in the ap April of my first year residency, having completed uh, the internship, I did go for two years to an obligatory service as a medical officer in the Navy. And I guess because they wanted to win the Korean War, they sent me to the Mediterranean, where I spent my two years and came back uh, to uh, Rochester to complete the residency. The other point to, to uh, stress is that in the in, at the end of the internship year, uh, there was a very steep pyramid that was actually made steeper by the fact that the war was coming, had come to an end. And of the 12 interns I started with in surgery, uh, only uh, one became, would be selected to go on to the residency program. Uh, and I was fortunate enough uh, to be uh, selected. In fact, I was not the one selected, but another uh, of my colleagues was selected and he elected to go into practice and not continue with his surgical training. And then I filled a slot that he had earned. So then I went to the Navy for two years, came back and finished my residency with no significant research time during the residency. I completed the residency in 1957. And uh, uh, during the residency, uh, I became interested in portal hypertension. Actually, during my rotation in a tuberculosis hospital, 
where we did a lot of thoracoplasties and bronchoscopies, and a paper had been published indicating that petrescin, that is vasopressin, uh, could stop uh, hemoptysis of associated with tuberculosis. And there was a subsequent paper by, I can't remember the authors, uh, indicating that it might work for uh, esophageal varices. And so we did a clinical study, the, the first that had ever been done, uh, with the uh, thoracic surgeon as our mentor and one other resident. And I think we were the first to show that vasopressin was effective in some people in reducing portal hypertension and controlling uh, bleeding esophageal varices. So that was my introduction to research on surgical issues. And once again, I had not done any uh, laboratory work up to that time. Yeah. And so after that landmark revelation about vasopressin and varices, how did you guide your research further from there? Well, uh, we had a whole hallway on the surgical academic floor, not the clinical floor, uh, which we did dog research and even research on chimpanzees and other animals. Uh, Obviously, that can't be done now. So I did uh, research on hepatic pathophysiology myself. And then when I joined the faculty, I, Dr. Merle Scott, who was the chairman uh, during my, inter- my junior instructorship, first academic appointment, uh, he uh, was very supportive and uh, he gave me that which I wanted in the lab. And I studied that. And I also studied uh, vascular pathophysiology, trying to create fine metal sutures through which we passed a negative current, knowing that the surface of all circulating blood cells are uh, negative and charged, whereas the internal, the nucleus is positive. And we, we tried to show that we could obviate uh, thrombosis at a suture line by passing a current uh, through it. That never uh, continued to be uh, used, of course, but it attracted the attention of Dr. DeBakey throughout the remainder of my academic life was extremely uh, kind to me as a much younger uh, uh, investigator. The other thing that Merle Scott, who was my chairman, Uh, during my chief residency year provided for me was I thought it would be, since we were all so parochial in our learning process, I thought it would be good to organize a conference of chief residents in surgery. I realized it was sort of inappropriate for me as a, a junior instructor to try to do this. Uh, I guess we'd call it chutzpah. But he endorsed this, and we brought together in the first residence conference here uh, in 1968, and there were representatives from the 
from the Brigham and Mass General and uh, and uh, Hopkins, etc. And that's continued, as you know, as part of the academic surgical week. So I'm very uh, proud of that. But uh, credit uh, should be directed to Merle Scott, who let a young uh, instructor uh, have his way. You talk about this research and these innovations and, you know, that the surgical line passing the current. Um, that was research that you did. And, you know, surgery has progressed over, you know, the past many, many years as technology advances. I'm curious to know what you find to be the most exciting or fascinating uh, advancement that we've made. Well, obviously, the major advancement is related to minimally invasive surgery. The advancements are not surgical, but they're technical and biochemical and genetic research. So surgery, the surgeon or or the surgical patient, rather, has benefited uh, from the dialogue between uh, basic science and biomedical engineering, uh, and, uh, and clinical surgery. The other thing I wanted to ask you is you practice in the days when you're talking about DeBakey and, um, and your chair and everyone, in the days where you were the general surgeon, you were also the vascular surgeon, you were also the CT surgeon, you were also the pediatric surgeon, and we've obviously seen the field change in subspecialization. It doesn't have to be specifically about that, but I'm just, again, reflecting on how the field has changed over time. What do you find to be the most worrisome, something that we should take precautions to prevent from happening? And what do you find to be the most exciting as we move forward? Well, as as I look back on, on my career, my first clinical paper in surgery appeared in the Annals of Surgery. And surprisingly enough, it was on uh, TE fistula in, in pediatric surgery. Uh, I also, in cardiothoracic surgery, I uh, I went with Jim DeWeese. The two of us drove to Cleveland uh, to meet Fred Cross, and we uh, bought a PEMCO p- pump for extracorporeal uh, bypass, heart bypass, and so at the as when bypass uh, cardiac surgery occurred, I was on the first perfusion pump. You know that would never happen uh, uh, today, and my surgery was diverse, and uh, each part was was exciting. Uh, the advantage now is that everybody is focused. Uh, and focused, uh, the more focused you get, uh, the more advances occur in that field of focus. Uh, uh, the, the problem is, uh, and I'm not one to say that things were better when, when I was practiced. They were better for me, but they're not better for society, obviously. The, the other day I had the opportunity to witness one of our transplant surgeons do a replacement, a placement of a kidney. This is the recipient kidney transplant 
with uh, a robotic, uh, with a Da Vinci a robotic approach. This is not done frequently in the United States, is more common in India, but it is done at the Henry Ford Hospital. And I actually was so awed to see what he could accomplish through sm uh, four small ports uh, and see the um, the uh, anastomosis that he performed with six uh, zero uh, Gore-Tex, uh, the likes of which I, I was in absolute awe. And of course, I would have liked to have had those modalities available for me and didn't. But uh, I felt I lived through what was an romantic and an exciting uh, time. Uh, also, I felt that our during the time that I was more active academically and which my developed close friendships, there was a lot more dialogue on a one-to-one -one basis with the residents that we, we trained. And was that due to the format of training that it was more of an apprenticeship yeah. style? Yes, yes. Uh, the training was uh, still was five years. Uh, and uh, I must say the 12, approximately 12 years that I was chair, I knew every resident well. And recently we had a reunion and a large percentage of them came back. And one of the uh, Focal points of our interests were uh, operating and using the operating room as a major venue for teaching. Uh, even the chairs did that. And uh, that's hard to do now because the rules, the regulations are so great that a major segment of a surgical chair's role is administrative. I was for the reason I never moved, I was good fortune, had the good fortune to be able to operate three days a week throughout my chairmanship and to therefore develop a closer bonding with the residents in the operating room uh, itself. Definitely different than what our chairs experience today, as you said. It's and not a criticism. It's the way it has to be right. because of the regulations. Uh, Sure. And that actually transitions really well into talking about uh, you were the founding editor of Schwartz's Principles of Surgery, which is now one of the you know seminal textbooks of general surgery. Uh, how did you how did this come about getting a, a principles well, of surgery textbook named after you? <laughs> well, I didn't name it after me, but the McGraw Hill, the publisher, uh, had a success in Harrison's textbook of medicine. They wanted a companion book similar for surgery. Uh, Sabaston was then the very popular book and was an excellent book. And so they invited six uh, surg academic surgeons, each of whom had produced some work for them in the past. I had done a book that was published by McGraw-Hill entitled Surgical Diseases of the Liver, which was published in 1963. I think it was the first extensive disease, uh, the extensive uh, text 
on surgical diseases of the liver before any single successful liver transplant had been done. In fact, Tom Starzl wrote the chapter for me because I had no experience with the liver uh, transplantation. So that was my entree to this uh, meeting that we had. And the other five surge, academic surgeons had all uh, had dialogue with them regarding publication. And we were invited down to New York City to d question whether we could do a book. Uh, and I was the only one at the time uh, who, I was the youngest, but I was the only one who didn't have a major uh, administrative commitment uh, in at my own institution. I was doing research and I had an active practice. I was not the chairman. Uh, and uh, Frank Spencer, who has remained a close friend until he just recently passed away, uh, said, uh, we'll do it uh, if uh, you, Cy, will be the uh, editor-in-chief because we have uh, other commitments. Uh, and so I said I would do it. And that's how the board was uh, formed. Uh, the book was put together quite specifically. The first edition came out in 1968. Uh, it was put together in 52 chapters with, so that one chapter could be reviewed every week by the residents in an open forum at their parent institution. And it was put together based on, to be based on pathophysiology and anatomy, stressing the physiology. And in the end, we tried as much as, much as possible to put it in a single uh, voice. So I would have the option of rewriting uh, each chapter so the reader would be used to the same approach for every chapter, be it on oncology or on plastic surgery. And how much effort, how much time did that take? It, I can tell you quite specifically, it took five hours every day, six days a week for two and a half to almost two, uh, year, uh, two years and uh, nine months. And I did it the early part of the morning, every morning. Wow. This while being now, clinically active. But I didn't active. write it all, of course. Sure. That was my effort. I can't tell you the efforts uh, of others. There have been multiple further editions of this textbook. What has changed over that time? Go right. Ahead. I did the first seven editions. And uh, then Dr. Brunicardi took over as the editor-in-chief and has done a spectacular job. As you know, in the first edition, oncology took, I think, seven or eight pages total. At the first edition, there were just maybe three live, three uh, liver transplants alive at the time. And as we pointed out at the American College of Surgeons, we made innumerable uh, we we published innumerable issues that over the course of time have not withstood the course of time and have proved to be uh, wrong. Uh, 
so he's done an excellent job, and McGraw-Hill has done an excellent job in uh, bringing everybody up to date. That's fantastic. And there's a, the newest edition is actually out this summer. Uh, can you tell yes, us? Yes, I about just that? I received mine about two weeks ago. And as you know, at the college last year, the college was kind enough to give us a session that was chaired by Dr. David Linehan, our current chair, and included uh, uh, John Fung and others participating to indicate the anticipated changes of future. But we've come forth with a uh, what is called a redux in each section from the first edition, that's 50 years ago, we've gone to the points, were reviewed by our current experts at the University of Rochester in that field, and we have pointed out uh, the, seri- the uh, major changes that have occurred. Uh, and for instance, in the past, we said that There was no other treatment of appendicitis other than appendectomy or the treatment of blunt trauma to the spleen in the adult necessitated splenectomy. These were all sort of pontificated in the first edition, and they no longer hold true. And in that same light, you are not just an editor of principles of surgery. You've been a prolific author of surgical history. In one of the uh, books, the titles that I saw was The Anatomist, The Barber Surgeon, and The King. And then you also had one called Gifted Hands, America's Most Significant Contributions to Surgery. Could you uh, give us a little summary of each of those books and maybe um, what is America's Significant Contributions to Surgery? Well, it's a book in itself, the first major successful intra-abdominal uh, intraperitoneal pro, uh, surgery was performed by Dr. McDowell in, in Dansville, Kentucky, uh, which he did a uh, removed a 22 and a half pound tumor from a woman without anesthesia uh, in the, his kitchen table. That's uh, that's very significant. The first. Uh, book on gastroenterology, the physiology of gastric uh, uh, secretion was published in Plattsburgh, New York by William Beaumont, uh, who was a military surgeon in which he took the advantage of having a patient who had a permanent fistula to the stomach to study gastric secretion with no sophisticated, he had no sophisticated uh, physiologic background and uh, bypass surgery, cardiac bypass surgery began with John Gibbons, uh, and you can go on in Tom Starzel's dedication to uh, uh, hepatic surgery and the first uh, uh, successful renal transplant by Joseph Murray, which was the g- gathered for him. Uh, gained for him, rather, the Nobel Prize. Uh, So the contributions have been uh, enormous, really. And what's that story about Henry II? Henry II was the king of France uh, in 1559, and uh, 
He was celebrating his daughter's uh, upcoming marriage to Philip II of Spain. And as was customary the case, uh, they carried out tilting uh, on horses, you know, with lances. Uh, the lance hit his uh, through his visor and entered his skull, his eye, actually. And he was treated both. There is a uh, graphic representation of him in his bed and uh, take, uh, attending him are both Andreas Vesalius, the father of mod modern anatomy and the producer of the Atlas, and um, Ambrose Paré, who was a military sur barber surgeon, and uh, he's the one who first suggested ligating major blood vessels rather than cauterizing them. So using that as a, uh, a starting point, uh, we did a study of Vesalius, beginning of anatomy, and uh, Ambrose Paré, and that took place during the Reformation. So. I felt it was as I was doing less surgery and looked for something to occupy my time in the realm of scholarship. The next thing we became interested at the University of Rochester, the president uh, felt that there ought to be university wide uh, consideration of the humanities. And I was on a planning committee of that with the woman who became the director, Dr. Joan Rubin. And I did a book on, the last book I did was on From Medicine to Manuscript, which was considered physicians from the time of Maimonides uh, to uh, Atul Gawande and Mukherjee, physicians who became notable writers of literature for the laity. And that included Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, and uh, Robin Cook, who wrote uh, Coma, and Michael Crichton, uh, whom you know wrote the Andromeda strain. So that book just came out. That sounds very fascinating. You've given, you've written so many books that I need to add to my reading list, especially this one you just mentioned sounds really interesting. The other thing that you've, you have been writing about too is uh, mapping of America. What exactly interested you in cartography and uh, how did you get involved with this? It's not a very uh, uh, romantic or, dr or dramatic story. The year I achieved tenure at the University of Rochester. Nin 1963, my wife, who was a practicing OBGYN, I came home that night and uh, we celebrated. And when the kids went to sleep, she said, I needed a hobby. I told her to go out and see if she could find me one. And her office was in the uh, city and she crossed the street one lunch hour and bought a secondhand book for either 25 or 50 cents, I can't remember, on the history of mapping. And there was one small chapter on the mapping of America. And uh, it just looked like it would be interesting and challenging to learn. So 
I started reading and then started collecting. The one thing I've really gathered from this entire interview thus far is that you like to occupy your time. Uh, I'm curious, when you were growing up, were you also a busybody? Were you kind of no, a troublemaker? <laughs> no, I was not. Actually, I was younger than everybody around me. I was really quite insecure because my I had no parental. My father was in the service, so there was nothing there. And I, I didn't have many friends uh, because I was in a... Uh, at a grade level, which was younger than me, because we used to skip grades in, in, New York, in the New York City primary system. And uh, no, I think uh, I didn't play golf. I, I did like sports, but I didn't play golf. And uh, I just uh, enjoy uh, scholarship and, uh, and learning something every day. That's incredible. And are you working on another book or? Well, we have a new president of the university coming, who is the provost at the University of Wisconsin, interestingly enough, where I owe to an institution to which I owe a great deal. So I just started. She'll be uh, invested uh, in uh, October and hopefully by them. I'm putting together some research on uh, the land on which the university is built. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, the University of Rochester started out as a Baptist college and then became a medical school, thanks to Mr. George Eastman, who underwrote it. And uh, uh, the land on which it was built the undergraduate uh, college was built and some of the medical school was a golf course, a famous golf course, uh, the Oak Hill golf course. It wasn't that famous at the time. And so I'm going through that part of history. And the first uh, land grant in uh, the United States after the American Revolutionary War was decided and the division was made between the uh, British possessions in North America and the United States, the original 13 states. Uh, the first uh, land grant was known as the Phelps Gorham Land Grant, which is, and the University of Rochester is located on it. So I had, after my wife, uh, passed away in 1999. We, I made a gift in her name and mine to the University of the original map, printed map of that land grant, which I had been fortunate enough to acquire one of the five uh, copies that are known to exist. So they had that. And just recently, I was able to acquire from uh, an auction uh, from a Pennsylvania uh, surveyor, a manuscript survey of the very same area on which uh, the university is built. So I'm writing a history of the survey and the early days of the University uh, was of Rochester. The first 
campus had been located in what is now the middle of the residential part of town, and now it's located in a different locale. And the, uh, so I'm doing a history of that, and hopefully I'll have it done by the time she is invested. And that leads us nicely into our final five questions, which are just uh, quick, easy questions uh, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So along the lines of writing a book, uh, what book are you currently reading? I'm reading the biography of Frederick Douglass, the uh, abolitionist uh, who was a slave. Extraordinary biography that just came out. Uh, it is spectacular. Is that the genre that you typically? I, I like biography, but I also like uh, uh, literature. I like I, the last novel that I read, which was was by Amos Oz, who's an Israeli writer who wrote. He just died at age eighty. Uh, he wrote in Hebrew, but was translated in English, and the book that he wrote was entitled Judas, uh, which he considers, it's a modern book. It's really quite good, uh, considers modern Israel and uh, his own take on Judas's role uh, related to Jesus. So our next question, when you were operating, did you used to listen to music in the operating room? I never had allowed any music in the OR to be the operating room, well, just my own idiosyncrasy. No, I never had music on. I, a lot of my colleagues did, and I'm sure it, they did very well because music was on, but I would never allow music in the OR. My sure. OR. Outside of the OR, do you listen to music at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love music. I love opera, and uh, yeah, but I not in the operating room. So our qu next question, um, it's kind of silly one, but if you were to compete in the Olympics, winter, summer Olympics, any event, doesn't have to be something you've ever played before, what would you want to do? Well, I, I just watched uh, Nadal win at the French Open, and I liked playing tennis until I had my right hip replaced and I had to stop, but I was never at that level of uh, uh is, I just never thought of becoming, be, participating in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. I can't answer that question. No worries. Are you a Nadal fan or do you yeah, have very a, much. Yeah, yeah, I think he's wonderful. King of the clay. But I do. I like Federer too. So <laughs> Both sides of that rivalry. Right. Uh, two more questions left. So what would you be doing if you weren't in medicine? Uh. I would at one time I hoped to to write lyrics for musical comedy. Huh. Oddly enough, because I did that for my medical school graduation play and for my uh, internship. We used to have an internship skit, and uh, uh, I enjoyed writing. I wrote the lyrics for both musicals. So last question for you. If you had to go back to your intern year, what advice would you give to yourself? And then second part of that question is, what advice do you give to the new interns starting their residency today? Well, if I, 
our internship, we worked two nights out of three. There was no concern with wellness, obviously, like it is now. I think it's nice that this has occurred. My advice actually is really quite specific and nobody will listen to it. I would think that I would tell the interns to develop a romance with medicine or surgery and take advantage of all aspects that make it romantic, including going down to the rare book room and looking at the salients and think of the interesting things that occur just like John Gibbons doing the work for pulmonary embolism and ending up with a cardiac bypass and uh, look to the surgical issues that occurred that are romantic and uh, go deeper and not gain their knowledge just superficially to answer board examinations or abside exams. I would like to see people spend more time on scholarship for for their own satisfaction. That is very sound advice. And I actually do think our listeners will take that, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okay. Such Hope a pleasure helpful. to talk to you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day. 